And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply. This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Greetings and welcome to Starkville. Baseball Hall of Famer Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of Fame. It's an inside the park home run. Doug Glanville. Mike Trout is coffee. At Starbucks with a double latte, skinny. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it. (laughs) Greetings and welcome to Starkville, presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops. Baseball cards. Starkville, as you know, is now part of the Athletic Baseball Show, where you will find great baseball talk all week long. And that includes us every Tuesday. So I am Jason Stark. I write about baseball for The Athletic. Joined, as always, by my good friend, writer, broadcaster, professor, distinguished former major leaguer, Doug Glanville. And Doug, uh, this week will be in the presence of one of the most creative and energetic GMs in the game, Alex Anthopoulos. He'll be joining us. Uh, he just traded for every <laughs> outfielder in America except you. So just checking. Do you feel slighted at all that you were not acquired by the Braves at the day? Well, I, I, I realized I was probably very expensive. Uh, you'd, you'd have to give up Freeman, Acuna Jr., and uh, possibly one of the Negro brothers. So... I think he realized that it was a little too expensive. So, yeah, because you're just indispensable to us here at Starkville. I'm never trading. I appreciate you, okay? that. Appreciate you that. Know, you're untouchable. Uh, so we really look forward to talking with Alex. In fact, do you know I once walked around the backfields with Alex Anthopoulos in spring training, and when we got done, and I looked at my recorder after we wrapped up, we had just talked for an hour and forty five minutes. <laughs> Doug, have you ever talked to anyone for an hour and 45 consecutive minutes? Hmm, I'll have to think about that. Um, probably not. Usually, you know, my five-year-old might jump into that conversation somewhere in there. So, yes. Or a lecture. I have to be at a lecture yeah, in a class. That's the only time I can think of. Yeah, it's not usually what we do, but uh, Alex loves to talk. He loves to ask questions, answer questions. He's just that kind of guy. I'm sure it'll come through in this conversation. But, uh, Doug, before we get to him... Took a little field trip last week to the Atlantic League. And why did I go to the Atlantic League? Because I got to see something I'd never seen before in any baseball field. I had never seen a pitcher standing 61 feet 6 inches from home plate um, before instead of 60 feet 6 inches. And it was fascinating, man. Uh, I know you remember when Theo Epstein was here a few months ago, he talked about the potential effect of moving the pitcher back a foot as a way to try to neutralize some of the velocity in the game. But 
Doug, even though it's really, really, really early in that experiment, uh, it was only three weeks in when I got there. Uh, now they're up to four weeks. There just hasn't been a significant impact on the amount of offense or the amount of action or the amount of contact in those games. wonder if that surprises you. Well, yeah, it does surprise me because I know one of the things going into it was sort of this reduction of average velocity, right? And and when you look at that number, you go back to a time in Major League Baseball where the offense certainly showed a, a marked difference. So then it makes you ask, well, what are the other factors that are coming into play, whether it's, you know, hitting approaches or is it on the hitter side or is it on you know, the types of pitches they're throwing, all these things. So, yeah, I, I think that surprises me. I don't, I don't know, if, is there a point where they're going to say this is enough data? Because if it's not a, a market difference, there's no way Major League Baseball is going to do anything differently. Yeah, I'll, I'll ask you that. Now, I mean, look, three weeks, that's not enough data. Um, so that, I mean, that, they caution me, people in the Atlantic League, people in Major League Baseball, way too early to, to draw any big conclusions. We can only look at the stats as they were. Um, you know, you brought this up. So I talked to a bunch of big leaguers about this change before I went. Then I ran some of their observations past players and managers in that league. And here's one of the biggest takeaways. Obviously, when you add a foot, you add more reaction time for these hitters. That's the whole idea. Uh, I think Theo said it was close to a, a, a mile and a half of effective velocity, and that felt like it would be significant. But there's another part of it that the hitters talked about a lot, and that is you're also adding a foot more movement. Uh, Max Muncy said to me that, you know, what he's concerned about is because no pitchers throw it straight anymore, um, this is a big factor. He said if the ball's straight, he didn't care where they throw it from. But most of these guys are out there throwing Frisbees, so another foot actually makes it harder to hit and not easier. Doug, you once hit for a living. Your thoughts? <laughs> oh, it, it makes sense. I mean, especially someone, you know, I was a much more successful against power pitchers, especially four-seam attack type of guys versus like, you know, the guys like, you know, Tom Glavin who could wrap a fish in a newspaper and throw it in you know, hit the corner and stuff. I mean, so, I mean, so I, I definitely get that from an approach standpoint, which is why I wonder about the hitters, right? Like where they actually come into this equation. Like once you kind of get into a mindset where you're selling out for the home run, that type of subtlety is is frustrating, right? Because now, you know, you're really trying to focus on movement. And yeah, if, if you have a pitcher that knows how to get the, the movement late in the process, like a Mariano Rivera, uh, then it's like having a joystick, right? You have another extra foot to mess around with, mess around with, and and so yeah. Hence the sticky substances, right? I mean, what was so effective about? It? They weren't necessarily throwing harder; they just had more movement. And and there's other ways to get movement, and and maybe what Muncie's addressing is it, it might have something to do with having more distance. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm very curious to to see more of this data come in because hitters are they're in for a tough time no matter what because they've already set up their approach a certain way that's kind of indicative of, of the game today. Yeah, they, they certainly think they are. And, you know, when you played, you were very active in the players' union. It's a big yeah. question. Can you see big league players ever agreeing to this? Well, only under the – I mean, first I'd say my first reaction is no. Uh, only because if that data does not parse out to show a market difference, there's no way. There's no point. 
you know, it, it, people want to be able to kind of keep the status quo unless you're really changing. Like, and I don't know what the story, maybe you can enlighten me on lowering the mound, right? But 1968, what what happened? And I guess the Players Association was, was it formed by that point? It's somewhere in there, 68? It was in its infancy, infancy. right? So uh, I'd be curious about that. But I, yeah, I do think it has to make a significant enough difference to say why, because otherwise, why are you changing anything? Yeah, I, I mean, we don't need to get into the uh, the labor aspect of this, but as you know, like if you're going to poll players and half of them are hitters and half of them are pitchers, <laughs> you're going to have a hard time getting to agree on anything. And this is one I, I couldn't find a single hitter or pitcher in the big leagues who thought this was a good idea. You know, I had different opinions about it. Garrett Cole was very inquisitive. He was asking me questions about it, but... Um, Nobody said, yeah, let's do this if the data shows it's a good idea. And so because it's so unlikely, uh, you know, just talk again, talking to players there. One of the players asked me just in casual conversation, really interesting question. He said, so if this has no chance to ever happen, isn't it unfair to us to turn us into human experiments? <laughs> right. They're like guinea pigs. Uh, and so I honestly feel sorry for these players, you know, because they have the same dreams everyone else has uh, who's playing professional baseball. They want to play in the big leagues. A lot of players have gone from the Atlantic League to the big leagues over the years, including this year. But their question is, all right, if, if you're working for a big league team and you're looking for, say, hitters, why would you sign somebody who has literally been playing a different game than everybody else. You know, it's a good point. Yeah. Uh, I like the idea of experimenting with this stuff, but can I like the idea in theory and yet still feel sorry for the players? Absolutely. And and because, I mean, that's kind of, the Atlantic League has taken this role. And I know there's a appreciation for Major League Baseball in that they are able to try things out and get some data, you know, pitch clocks, all these things. But I, as a player who's, you know, trying to seriously get back into the, the major league ranks, so to speak. Uh, yeah, you do. You wonder that certain changes, fine. You want to try a pitch clock, but other things might really have a significance on your whole approach, right? Moving the mound back of a foot, or you, you know, whatever. You're a pitcher, and you move the fences to 300 feet because you want home runs. You know, these are going to have a, a greater impact. So, you know, they have to be mindful of that and that that may affect the league, and then who wants to participate? There are other, I guess, pro leagues, right? I mean. So I, I do wonder if the Atlanta League's gonna have to strike that balance because you are playing a different game. I mean, and I guess my question to you is: Are they, are all the mounds like physically moved back a foot? I mean, how is this just the rubber, or what? Are, what are they doing there? How do they actually do it? Yeah. Now, do you remember? Do you remember Mauro Goose Gazzo? He's probably pitching in the big leagues when you were playing, right? He he was a he's the manager of the team in Gastonia, the oh, Honey yeah, Hunters. And we, you know, we were talking about that, how every, every team did it a little different. Like I decided not to get into this when I wrote about it, but some teams just physically moved the rubber back a mm -hmm. foot. And some of those teams recontoured the mound. Some of them barely contoured the, recontoured the mound. Uh, I know in Lancaster, they kind of developed a, like this little technological deal where they have two mounds. They're two rubbers, 
and they have one at 61 and one at 62 or one at 61 and one at 60 and depending on what's going on there that day that's the one they raise or lower and i mean think about that so that like that you're exactly right though it's a challenge just to do this and uh so you know these mounds feel different but there's you know theo when he was on our show he talked about how pitchers throw to catchers where the catchers set up um right and you know pitchers were telling me they a lot of them they look at the hitter where the hitter set up and the hitters are moving up and back trying to figure this out themselves and so it's just way too soon to know are are, are there going to be more injuries because of it there's i mean there's some anecdotal talk of like soreness in certain guys lats but the, the transaction column doesn't really reflect that there's been a big problem. I, I don't know. I mean, we need a lot more evidence. It'll be interesting to see when this season ends, which is more than a month from yeah. now, um, whether they feel like they do know enough or whether they want to continue to experiment because they're doing a lot of stuff in that league. You know, they have uh, a rule that I Pickoffs, right? literally named, the, 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 the double, double hook. hook. Yeah. No, they Okay, they don't have the pickoff rules this year. They tried those out two years ago. Um, the double hook they're doing where the when the uh, starting pitcher leaves the game, the DH, lose your DH. Yeah. Right, and so, like, the, you know, there's been some games where the, your best hitter gets one at bat, yeah. you know. Uh, the game I was at was not that kind of game. It was one nothing into the seventh. It wound up 2-1. So there was... There wasn't a big impact on that game, but that's been interesting. Some people really like that rule. They're doing shift limitations. They're still doing the electronic strike zone, which is a still incredibly controversial because they're redefining what a strike is, and the hitters hate that. And it like there's a lot of stuff going on in that league. And again, so you understand why these players feel like they're like they're the they're the rats running through the maze. And do people realize that's what they're doing, or do they still look at them as baseball players? It's a yeah. Great well, it's a it's the, you know it's a lot of changes at once. I think that's the thing you have to strike, and and which ones really do make you play a different game, and which ones <clears throat> are within the realm of change. And I think that that's sort of the thing, because right. you know I, one thing that came to mind is, you know, if it's about movement and speed, you know, why not just change the ball, right? If you want to. You know, you really, you know, if you, I mean, I know this is like, you know, you would never say this, but all right, the seams matter, right? So change the the seams or the, the, the actual material to create more drag or, I mean, because I think if you, like you made a great point about, well, if the catcher sets up deeper or the hitters moves in the box, you're always flirting between 59 and 63 feet. I mean, you're already doing that. So the other thing I would think from that is, well, maybe you change the batter's box, like force the batter to be in a certain spot right you can't like be way up in the box or way back in the box you know but the thing that's what i love about the game and what can make you pull your hair out is you can start chasing your tail you know you really can like you make this adjustment and then this falls off which is what we love about the game in its perfection right we kind of like we know how fragile it is as soon as you start changing one thing it's not it's not that simple so um but yeah those players are gonna have to make decisions and I, I, you know, they might have a mutiny on their hand at some point. I don't know if there's an Atlantic League union or something, but I, I think they're, <laughs> I think not. they're gonna, I think it's gonna be hard for these players if they make too many changes that change the the complexion of what they're actually doing. Yeah, they, they, you know, they had some players who specifically requested to get traded before this went into effect. Um, 
there are quite a few former big leaguers in that league who said, no, no, I'm not doing this. Trade me somewhere. So there was a flurry of trades, but there's still a lot of guys just sticking it out, just <laughs> trying to see what happened. You know, Brandon Phillips is an owner. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> you don't see that much. Like, I, uh, we, we got to move on. But I, despite all of this, I honestly do love the Atlantic League. I love that they're trying stuff like this. So if you're listening and, you're, and you live near a team in that league, I encourage you to uh, go check out their games, check out their rule experiments for yourself. It's a fun night at the ballpark. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the Internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. All right, it's time to welcome in this week's special guest. He is the general manager of the Atlanta Braves, Alex Anthopoulos. Alex, thanks for joining me and Doug Glanville here in Starkville. Glad to be on, guys. Uh, Alex, I I want to take you back to the day before the All-Star break because it was the day your team suffered an injury that felt at the time like it was going to wreck your season. Uh, it's the day Ronald Acuna Jr. hurts his knee. He's out for the year. And, like, I was at the All-Star game, and I remember telling somebody that day after we heard this news, I don't know how Alex Anthopoulos can possibly feel the same about his team today that he felt yesterday. So why was that injury not a death nail for your season? Well, not to keep piling on, but in that same very day, Ian Anderson went out and pitched and came out with a sore shoulder. So, and he was throwing a yeah, three and a half ERA. So it was just like, if you ever watched the movie, Mike, Cousin Vinny, oh, yeah. how much more can we pile on? <laughs> you know, <laughs> so um, you know, and it was you know the thing is we had draft meetings going on too, right? So it was just like it, it was a unique, it was just a crazy like it, it's been a really uh, challenging year. I'm not complaining because these are great jobs and 
everything else, but just with everything, you want to win. We're all competitive. Yeah, Saturday, Cunha, we get the news on Sunday that he's done for the season. Um, then Ian Anderson comes out with a sore shoulder, and we were going to be waiting on an MRI the Tuesday of the All-Star break. So, you know, we were we didn't know what to expect there. And, um, yeah, it was not a good feeling going into the All-Star break on the Monday, and we were in the middle of the draft as well. Um, so, but we were still hanging on. We were still close. I don't know if we were four out, five out. We were still close. So, um, yeah, it didn't look good. It didn't feel good. Um, I've just been part of a lot of teams that haven't made the playoffs one or have been out of it and not played meaningful games into September. And Doug knows you get to August and fantasy football is the big thing. (laughs) Um, You're facing a tough starter and you're out of it. Guys all of a sudden come up with quads and hamstrings and I just can't go today and – they start dropping like flies. It's just a miserable way to live. And I'm obviously the fans experience it too. And, um, you know, I just think as long as you have a chance, I think you owe it to so many people, the staff, the fans, ownership, your players, your clubhouse, um, to keep trying and keep going. Yeah, so let, let's go back to that point in time because I, you're dealing with all this news. You're juggling all the draft stuff. And while all this is going on during the All-Star break, you made two trades during the break. Okay, all right? You trade for Jock Peterson from the Cubs, Steven Vogt from the Diamondbacks. So how did those deals come about? And maybe maybe more importantly, were you trying to send a message to your team when you made them? Yeah, so it was, like you said, it was a really crazy time. So, you know, I'm Canadian and my, fa- my wife's side of the family is still up in Canada, so they normally head back to um, just outside of Toronto for the summer. So they had left at, um, at the end of June, June 27th. And I hadn't seen them in about three weeks. And I was planning on heading back to Canada too. And there's all kinds of, you know, laws and restrictions to get in. So I was only going to get there because we were back at home on Friday. So we had the draft and I was only going to get back for a day or two. And I hadn't seen them in three weeks. So as you can imagine, uh, when I got back and, okay, we got quality time. We're going to squeeze out these 48 hours. Um, <laughs> things changed. So, I, you know, we had to – I felt like, and organizationally, we needed to try to do something. Um, it definitely looked bleak, and it was important in my mind to send a message to the clubhouse that we weren't pulling the plug. I had a very good sense that the minute we reported back on Friday, the conversation was going to shift to, okay, sky is falling, Anderson's out. Uh, Acuna is out for the season now. We'd obviously lost Ozuna, Darno, and Noah, uh, you know, a lot of other players. And I felt like the topic was going to change to, okay, you guys are selling, who's going? And that was going to permeate the, the clubhouse. And, um, you know, we weren't ready to go that route. So I called Jed Hoyer during the All-Star break. He was trying to juggle the same things. We were both hadn't spent time with family, and he had a lot of things going. And I just explained to him that, I would do more and pay more for a deal. Now I was very transparent. The The timing of the deal was as important as the deal itself, because I felt like, and I wanted to get it on the board by Thursday night, Friday morning at the latest. So when guys showed up, it was like, okay, we're adding, we're not selling. And that conversation was going to get uh, crushed right out of the gate. So, um, you know, obviously we like jock and we thought he was a good player, but it was definitely timing was critically important in my mind because we, we talked about it before. Our two weeks of games coming out of the break were against really, really good teams. The Brewers, the Padres, um, Tampa Bay. We had five against the Mets, the Phillies. We had a meat grinder those last two weeks. So 
uh, it was important. I felt like from a morale standpoint, our guys were still, we were going to move forward and I was going to continue to try to add. And we were as an organization going to continue to try to add. Well, well let me ask you about those two weeks. Cause those two weeks, your team did something incredible alternated wins and losses every other game for that whole time. And like, I'm always interested in how a GM watches his team play 500 ish baseball for so long and still feel like it's worth trying to win. You know, that expression, you know, you're, you're, you are what your record says you are as like, a, this is a hundred games into this season. So why did you think you were more than your record says you were? No, I think we had, so it was a few components and you're right. We, you know, being five around the 500 mark in that stretch was a good outcome considering how things had been going and the players that we had lost and so on. And um, like generally speaking, our run differential was pretty solid. I think it was as good as anyone in the NL East. Um, so that was a quick indicator from that standpoint. We had a bunch of players that obviously were really talented, but weren't playing up to what they had done in the past. And they had all the ability. It's not like they had lost their talent or ability. And you felt like at some point there'd be a regression to the mean that these guys were going to start playing better. And, you know, the other component was, okay, um, Ian Anderson, we felt like would be back at some point in August. Noah would be back at some point in August. Darno would be back at some point in August. So those are really impactful guys. And you still have another six weeks left, but we had 60 games left. 60 games, a lot of games. And, um, you know, I give our manager, our coaches, our players all the credit in the world because they kept us close. And you, you, we tried to make trades all season, but it, very few clubs are motivated to make deals early, um, both from a competitive standpoint, fan base, clubhouse, stuff to start selling. So most times these deals happen at the end of July. So to have to wait pretty much till the end of July to be able to add um, your players and your coaches and your manager you need to be able to keep the team close, and they did that. They, they certainly deserve all the credit for being able to keep the club close until we were able to add. Yeah, well, Alex, I'm always curious about the communication from operations, from general manager seat to the players. Like, you've outlined very clearly your belief in this team. How does that message get to the players uh, in terms of, you know, saying, hey, we're in this? Is that something you communicate directly through the manager? Uh, what's your communication approach with that? Yeah, so I, I didn't like, you know, I didn't, um, I didn't talk to anybody. I knew obviously you lose Acuna, you lose Ian Anderson, um, things that already not been going well. And you no, know, there's a lot of times the general manager I feel as though, again, this is just from failing and experience. You know, the same way when things aren't going well, you need to show that you're trying. And it may just be sometimes shaking it up, making changes, calling a guy up, doing what you can, trying to add. You know, sure, you can sit guys down and talk to them and so on. And um, I didn't have any team meetings or pull guys aside in an office or anything like that at all. But um, I did, I think, a night before the trade deadline, um, talk to a few guys because we were on the road. We just got back from the road trip. So it was late at night and just wanted to get yeah, – we had a lot of things going and um, wanted to talk to a few of the guys and uh, just let, let them know where my head was, what we were going to look to do. And – Look, some of them were just very realistic. Our guys, we have a good group of guys like, look, we don't know that you'll be able to, are there enough guys out there? We need a lot of needs and so on. And even um, I think going into the all-star break and so on, um, I was seeing one of our teams and and um, I was talking to one of our players 
And I was seeing one of our teams in the minor leagues and so on. And he's like, oh, what are you doing there? And I said, look, I want to see, you know, if there's, I want to kind of get some eyes on guys. We may be trading some guys away. And, um, you know, the mindset was just like, man, we're really, you know, I basically, I understand if we can't add in light of what's gone on this past year, the injuries, the guys we've missed and so on. It's just, you know, I, and I, I, I got it. This just might not be our year. Right. And my response was just like, yeah, I understand. I get it. It's not unreasonable to think that way, but we still have a chance. We still have a good team. No one's really pulled away from this thing. And if we could add some players, um, you know, we have talent and guys can play better. And, you know, there's definitely a chance there. And, you know, really the one executive who's really impacted me when it comes to this is Billy Bean is really the guy that, you know, he's, I got to know him as an assistant to JP Ricciardi and they're very good friends. And uh, you see it, they never go through these five, six year rebuilds and so on. And they have as many um, challenges as anybody from, you know, financial standpoint and so on. And they always try, they always go for it. And I know his mentality is if you can just stay close up until the trade deadline, you know, a lot of teams are going to have to make a tough decision to sell and they're going to fall off. And if you're willing to be aggressive and take some risks and add, you have a chance. And it's a lot more fun doing these jobs when you have a chance, chance to win. So um, I, from a, you know, I had my first five years as a GM, we didn't make the playoffs. My sixth year, we finally did. Um, and now it's been five, six years that play, been in the playoffs or played important games in a row. And I don't want to go back. I know what it's like. I remember what it's like. I remember well what it's like. And, you know, there's a lot of components. In these positions, you feel like beyond the fan base and everything else, the whole organization, um, they look to you as well, like stadium employees, you know, all the other side, the people that put it all together, that run the club day in and day out. They live and die with this team too. And sometimes you have to go up and explain yourself to them and you feel bad because you you let them down. You have control over adding players to the roster and so on. And – when a team is out of it and they don't have have a chance, it's tough to stomach. So if we're close, I think our, our mentality, and if we feel we have a real shot, I think we're always going to look bad when we can. All right. So let's talk about deadline day. Okay. Now I don't know if you're going to win the executive of the year award, but I felt back then, like you were going to win the executive of the day award. <laughs> you <laughs> traded for three outfielders in one day. I was kidding Doug earlier you, that you traded for every outfielder in America except him. So you can confirm yeah. that he was never on your radar screen, right? You know Doug Landville trades? We talked about it briefly. We, we want a little more, more, more power. So, yeah. Don't but I can bunt. More play discipline. <laughs> right, that's I, right. I can bunt. I, I, I didn't want to say it. I didn't want to say <laughs> so, so listen, have you ever traded for three outfielders in one day before? And has anybody? Uh, yeah, and look, it wasn't by design. We were trying to do stuff a week before, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Look, I've had this happen a few times trade deadline. You know, you I really don't like doing things the last day. I don't. It's just, it's a scramble. There's a lot going on. All 30 clubs are having dialogue you're up against the clock. You've got to get your trainers involved, doctors and so on. It's just not a very, it's not a good environment to make a decision. in. so, um, but it just worked out that way. Now, look, we, our projected starting outfield was gone. So we essentially needed to replace three outfielders. Um, and we got through the season for four months with the group that we had and they did a solid job for us, but we didn't, you know, I definitely don't want to be in that position. I have to add that many players and uh, make that many trades. I would much rather be in a position where you're like the Chicago White Sox. And, oh, you know, you need a second baseman, you need a reliever, 
and you're good because you're, you're winning the division, you're in great shape, and uh, you just need to tweak and so on. But we had a lot of work to do. We had a lot of holes. And, um, you know, that's, you know, you look back and I wish I'd done more in, in the winter or earlier in the season and, and so on. But I am glad we were able to salvage some things and get back to being competitive again. So, so what was the craziest deal out of all those deals on deadline day? Um, I got a time I'm trying to think. So the, I'm trying to think of top of my head. The Wait. deals we did, we did Duval, Rosario, and so Rodriguez, right? And Solaire. Oh, and Solaire. That's right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Solaire was, yeah, so that's right. We did four. I'm sorry. It was a bit of a blur. But, yeah, Solaire <laughs> was, um, yeah, Duval and Rosario were done earlier in the day. We almost did them in tandem at the same same time. Rodriguez, we had been talking about for a while. It was start, stop, start, stop. And that one came in. I mean, we, we agreed with basically 45 minutes to go, an hour to go. Solaire was the last-minute deal. Um, we had talked to Kansas City uh, earlier in, in the week. Um, I think it was on one of – yeah, either Monday or, or Tuesday we had talked to them, and it we just kind of didn't get anywhere. And then um, really with 30 minutes to go – uh, we got it back on track and we completed that one so fast that I think our trainer was like, Hey, I don't even know we got Solaire. Like it had happened right at the last minute. So that one, we, he was on our radar. We had talked about him, but yeah, that one came in pretty last minute and that was not crazy, but yeah, it was, it was quick and I won't say rushed, but you're up against the clock. You do worry about being able to get these deals in. Yeah, and he was a DH, right? He'd hardly play the outfield at all. And and now think about where your team might be if you had not made that deal. <laughs> no, no doubt about it. And you know, um, you know, you do all this stuff as as a, a group. And I give uh, one of our AGMs, Jason Perret, a lot of credit um, because we the kind of the talks with Solera died, and uh, he brought he brought it up again and said, you know. Maybe there's a way to redo this, to take, you know, examine it again, and so on. And um, you know, you, there's a lot of things flying on those days, and you have you have a group of people and staff, and GMs aren't doing this stuff on their own. They're not making all the phone calls and all the texts, and you need a group of people doing the administrative, talking to other teams, talking to AGMs, and so on. Um, but you know, I give him a lot of credit to keep it alive, and uh, we're glad to be able to get it done. He's been great for us. Well, Alex, what do you see in players like Solaire? that you feel other teams may not be seeing? I mean, if you have a player that's kind of been struggling, even though he won a, a home run title, what what kind of metrics or thoughts do you look into to say, oh, I feel confident this person, this player is going to have a better second half and a, and they're going, to folk, they're going to get to that upside? Yeah, so I don't know that you're ever confident in terms of, you know, you don't know when you bring a guy in, new clubhouse, new team, and just small samples, right? I remember we traded for Adam Duvall my first year, 2018, and, uh, he really had a rough go of it with us. Um, but we stuck with him and we finally got back on track. But for that moment in time, he didn't really play play well. And uh, sometimes guys press and so on. Um, you know, the one thing was Solaire, and again, I give I give a lot of people credit on him. He was swinging the bat really well. That was, I think, you know, there's obviously talent and ability had been good in the past. He had finally been swinging the bat well, even though the the aggregate stats weren't great. In that short period, he had been doing well. And, um, you know, from a defensive standpoint, we had concerns. You know, he had been DHing uh, the majority of the time. And when he had played the outfield, it, it, he didn't play great out for the Royals. And um, we didn't know exactly playing time-wise how it was going to work. And our ma manager the day after we got him, we were going to start him 
Sunday, we were facing Brett Anderson and he was going to start that day, you know, guaranteed. But our manager on Saturday said, you know what? So Lair's swinging the bat while he's locked in. Um, and I guess he had told me that the staff had started talking about him too. Let's get him in there now. He's hot. He's rolling. Let's take advantage of it. We don't want him getting cold. It was obviously had been cold for the majority of the year. So, you know, things like this, it takes a lot of people putting in, whether it's Jason Perret bringing stuff up. And obviously we have a lot of staff that we're doing things too, or Brian Snitker saying, Hey, I'm going to play him a day earlier than we planned on it. And just trying to, to get him out there as well. Eric Young, our outfield coach was adamant that I will make this guy better outfielder adamant. And, um, he had brought up his name to me a week earlier too. So you, know, you can give credit to a lot of people. Obviously the GM's the one that does the, the, the calls and the media and this and that, but you know, I'm one of 20 people that's involved in making those decisions. And uh, if you're doing it alone, you're not going to do well. Well, Alex, I'm, I'm curious how, uh, do you have a lot of um, like what if moments in, in this role that you're in as, you know, baseball? Tons, operate? tons and, and tons. You know, so is it sometimes come down to if I called the Giants first or if I called the Padres first? I mean, how much do you feel that, you know, you're dealing with 30 teams and, you know, well, including yourself. So how do you, you know, not sort of get caught up in these, all these what if scenarios and like who you actually called first. In the moment, there's no what ifs. You're just, it's your job to, I think the longer you do it, the more you understand the way teams operate, GMs operate. Everyone has their own uh, challenges, right? So whether it's ownership uh, with competitive windows and so on, and you have to be careful in my mind because you have only a certain amount of time you really need to lock in on certain things you think have a real chance of happening. And you have to try to make that decision of what's real, what isn't. Everyone will take your calls and everyone will talk, but what deals really have a chance? Because you could spend all, and as a young GM, I would chase down deals that probably were never going to happen. But yeah, you probably just, you need to learn it. You keep banging on the door, banging on the door, and you wasted all that time. And it doesn't mean that you don't try, but I think with more experience, you start realizing, you know what, for various reasons, this probably isn't going to happen. So-and-so probably isn't going to get uh, moved. I'm going to move on and spend time on things that are a little more real. In terms of things like what if and so on, I look back a lot, probably to a fault. Um, and because you always think I could have done more, we could have done more. Um, you know, I, to this day, it was such a long time ago, but 20, 2015 trade deadline Toronto, we were talking to Oakland about Ben Zobrist. Um, you end up going to the Royals. They beat us in the ALCS. You know, guys like Liam Hendricks and Telez, they were the hangups in the deal for us, you know. And uh, again, they weren't, that wasn't the entire deal, but they were the hangups in, in the deal. So, you know, I, I look back and I say, well, what if we had gotten Ben Zobrist and, and the Royals didn't? Do we go to the World Series, right? And you could drive yourself nuts doing that stuff because um, you don't know how things are going to turn out. But I also think you get better by you look back and try to learn from the experience. I'm not a big believer in, ah, it happens, it's luck. It's, you know, just kind of shrug your shoulders. Whatever things you feel like you could have improved on or you made a mistake on, I probably obsess about trying to learn from it. Take something from it to apply to the next time. Well, hey, on that note, back on July 30th, did you feel like you'd done enough? You know, I, I know people in your market were asking, did they get enough pitching? Yeah, he made six trades, but did he did he get enough pitching? Did you feel like you wished you'd added more pitching? Always. I think I think every contending team will tell you the same thing. You can never have enough. The other thing is, you know, you've got two months to go now. You can't add anybody in the month of August. And you know, that was the thought of even with the outfielders. Um, we knew at some point we would have 
more depth and playing time. Right now we have four guys that could play every day and we have three outfield spots in the NL. But you also know that in those last two months, someone's going to get hurt. Someone might not perform. You just need to be prepared for that. So um, I think same thing, whether it's rotation and bullpen, you look back and, um, you know, I, I don't think there was any deal right now in this moment that I wish we would have agreed to. Um, but I think you look back and say, I wish we would have found a way to do more, found a way to add more. Um, we still have a long way to go and it's close and it's going to come down to the wire in my mind. And um, until you get there, and even when you do get there, still when you're starting to put together your, your team for the postseason, start to think about what, what you need and so on. So, um, but more, the most important thing is you need to get in first. So getting in is obviously the priority. Um, you still stress about all these games. And, um, you know, obviously we still have a long road to go. You know, I know you're an energetic guy. Um, just curious what your deadline day is like. Like, what's your preferred means of communicating with your fellow GMs? Are you a texter? Are you a caller? Are you an emailer? Do you do Twitter. all three at once? Maybe Twitter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'd say this. I, I don't think, and I am curious what other GMs would say, I don't very rarely will GMs send emails. It's text, right? It's more direct. Because you think about it, our, our inboxes get filled pretty fast. If all these different parts of the organization are getting stuff all the time, the business side, the baseball side, scouting, development, international. Um, so your inbox is getting flooded with emails. So I think text is definitely uh, very common. Phone calls as well. Sometimes you just need to quickly get a sense. So there might be, I might have a real quick question i need to ask while i'm trying to do something else is so and so in play so so available um just to get a quick answer but if i need to maybe talk through some things or ask some things it might take too much time to go back and text you don't know tone i just want to get on the phone and, and um really quick quickly try to uh to make a call um so i would say both i'd say the majority of individuals use both but I think more so now than five years ago, six years ago, I think we all use our staffs well. Everyone has relationships. So your AGMs and so on, and people that might have relationships with clubs and, um, you know, a lot of teams have a lot going on. You need to have multiple lines of communication with other clubs because it is kind of chaotic, especially towards the end. Well, Alex, how do you manage the sort of confidentiality of the information, right? I mean, you have so much more sort of, you know, I guess spaces for info to flow out where you may not want, especially to players. I mean, I remember when Kevin Euclid, uh, you know, found out on like Twitter or something, you know, like, uh, about being traded. I think it was to the White Sox or you know Boston from Boston. So, um, so yeah, I'm curious about the, the player communication and when you feel it's time to be able to say to a player, "Hey, I'm trading you," or "You're getting traded." Do you wait till after the fact, or is it something that you keep the lines open? So, um, yeah, very important in my mind that a player hears it from the club. Very, very important. I mean, I, I don't believe um, I've it, since I've, this is my 10th year as a general manager, I don't believe there's been a player who found out about being traded from somebody else or on Twitter. I don't believe. I hope I'm, I'm right about that. Um, but, yeah, it's pretty important that they hear it. Again, I think the majority of the time it's not that it's I'm sure the minute you tell them they're traded, they bl they bl blank out and they probably don't hear the remainder of the conversation. I just think it's important that they hear it from you first. Um, tell you when we traded Jose Reyes in, in Toronto, that deal was going on late. Um, we were in Toronto. He was in Toronto. I called the manager. The team was probably 1130 at night. We had an off day. 
And um, I had him come in and we called those. The deal was probably going to get done around one in the morning, but we knew it was happening. We had, we had agreed and we called Jose to the clubhouse and mid- midnight, I think, just to be able to tell him to his face um, rather than just call him over the phone. Now, obviously, if you're not around a player, you're not on the road, you do what you can, but it was important. So um, I don't know that there's a right or wrong way. I think there's just a way that you want to be treated, you think. And um, I think when you can be direct with someone, it's certainly important, but um, you don't want to have that conversation until you know it's certainly going to happen. Um, I haven't had a scenario where I've kept a guy in the loop and being traded and so on. Um, that would be tough. I can imagine as a player, if you're coming in every day waiting to be traded, uh, that, that's got to be a hard thing to play through and also with family and friends and having a watch, I guess, on you would, would be tough as well. So we really work hard to keep things quiet because n- 99% of any trade talks don't occur. I mean, the trades don't get done. So um, I don't think it's worth having to open up the can of worms of even a trade discussion if it's probably not going to happen. You know, Alex, to hear you talk, I can hear that you're still nervous about the division even though like the, always uh, like right the pennant probability or your playoff probability is like 80 percent people act like you're in charge of this division the division hasn't turned out to be what people thought it would be what are you nervous about and why do you think the nl east hasn't been this powerhouse division that people thought it would be I mean, one, yeah, I don't, I mean, I've seen all that stuff. The playoff percentage it looked the same way when our playoff odds were really low. So, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that I don't necessarily weigh that. I respect it. Um, I just don't weigh it because I know how quickly things can change. You know, you'll win three in a row. You lose three in a row. Your competitors do the opposite. Uh, the odds change that fast. So people have said from the beginning of August to now, how the, you know, how the odds have changed. Why can't that happen in September? You know, the other way. So I just don't buy into the, um, you know, you're, you know, now you have five games left or something like that. Sure. But um, we've won the division the last three years and all three years, it's felt like a grind. Uh, you stress all the way to the end. Even I remember um, last year, the last week we had the Marlins for a four game series and we played the Red Sox and that four game series for the Marlins was huge. If we had gotten swept us three out of four, uh, things could have changed and they could have won the East. So um, we played the Phillies and, and the Mets that last week. I expect those games to matter. I expect to worry about it. Um, and I would just say, I think most general managers in sports, it's your job to worry. I don't think it's manufactured. Um, I think that's how you probably do a good job is that you continue to worry and worry about depth and all kinds of things going forward. Um, just because I, I've seen things change fast. So we do. We literally have, a, I think we have 33 games left. Play, we play L.A. right now. We play Colorado at home. They've been unbelievable at home. Um, we obviously still have the Mets. We still have the, you know, the, the Nats and the Phillies and Miami. And, um, it's, we have a long stretch here going. Well, let me ask you about something that I know people in Atlanta are nervous about, and that is Freddie Freeman's future. Uh, I cannot imagine Freddie Freeman – playing anywhere other than Atlanta. But is there a way to characterize how you look at his situation and the likelihood of him staying in Atlanta? Yeah, so I've been asked that, which was to be expected, right? Until you have a deal done, you have your franchise players uh, in the last year's deal, expected that he was going to get asked about it. I was certainly going to get asked about it. You know, I, I never get into contract 
conversations or discussions just because of the the, the distraction that it, you know and he, I, I start commenting or he starts commenting people start to parse those words and then it becomes more of a story and a distraction but i understand it's it's, it's certainly out, out there i think what i've basically been able to, to repeat um is our goal is to sign him I and mean, that goes without saying he's been very clear his goal is to stay here he loves the braves he loves atlanta contract talks you know they take time certain times sometimes they come together quick but i can go through all kinds of examples of guys that ended up back just this past offseason dj lemayhew um ended up back with new york he wanted to be there they wanted to keep him i don't you know i can't speak for the player or the organization but they got it done jt Realmuto, clearly uh they wanted to keep him he enjoyed it there it got done when i was in la turner and and both jansen were free agents they wanted to stay it was a process but we got it done so um you know, obviously, until he's signed, I'm going to get asked. But our goal is to keep him. His goal is to stay. And beyond that, um, I don't say much because it's no upside. Well, you know, Alex, and, and, you know, understanding the sensitivity from the player standpoint, uh, I, I read somewhere that when you kind of first started, I think, in Montreal, you, you started in, in fan mail. You were sorting yep. fan mail. <laughs> and so I'm curious about, your evolution and how you've hit kind of every spot, right? You've really organically grown to this position where you've seen the uh, the managerial front office side from a lot of perspectives. Uh, is there something that's been a through line about how you see dealing with players and, and sort of certain sensibilities that you've uh, developed over the years, even starting with whether reading their mail or sorting their mail and how it's come to fruition today? Yeah, so I grew up in Montreal, and I remember I wanted to get into sports, get into baseball, apply to every team, any type of I wanted a baseball operations internship. And, um, you know, they were hard to come by, especially being Canadian. That was a challenge as well. Um, but I remember when the Expos didn't really have much, I told them, I'll do anything, whatever you have. So I just want to get in. You know, I liked scouting and evaluating, and that was the thing I was most curious about and interested about. So they had basically where you just took the player's mail and you would just kind of organize it and you would pre present it to them. You wouldn't read it necessarily, just present it to them. Um, but I used that as an opportunity. I would do that during the day and at night I'd go sit in seats and sit with scouts. I'd write scouting reports and be probably really annoying and ask all kinds of questions and so on. And some guys were fantastic. Some guys blew, blew me off, but um, I learned a ton, you know, and I used that as a vehicle to get better and to, to improve. But um I remember walking into a club bus for the first time. I was in awe. I didn't say anything. I kept my mouth shut. But I walk, walking in, I was pretty much in awe of all those players. I, I grew up following them. But I think now I've been in baseball for a long time. It's been 22 years. Um, I think like anything else, I think um, I don't view it as a, an us and them or I'm the boss or the organizational chart and so on. We all have a role. The manager has a role. The general manager has a role. The players. We're in this together, yes. As a GM, you have the authority to influence contracts and guys moving up and down. But once all that stuff is moved aside, we're working together. So um, I think I've learned over time is I view them in a way and as my peer in the organization. We're working together. We're not at the same level. No one's above the other. They just have a role to go out and play, which is really hard. We have a role to do the admin side and put those things together. So I think if anything, you try to be as transparent as you can be. You understand there's just certain things that are going to conflict. They're trying to win today. We have to manage short-term and long-term, and I get it. Um, but I think the biggest thing is just to try to be as transparent as you can be. 
And sometimes you can't be transparent. You just can't. And I'll t- I'll t- tell them that. Um, I've had players ask me about getting a no trade clause or, or getting traded, and I'll make a comment like, you know, um, you know, we're probably not trading you, but I'll give an example. If some team, and I want to mention a name because I don't want to get accused of tampering, but if we get offered one of the best players in the game for you, you're probably getting traded. You know, and, that, and I, I would tell them you would do the same thing if you're in my, my shoes. So um, I'll just be as honest as I can, but I'll walk them through why we don't want to trade them, why we don't plan on trading them. But, you know, uh, the only way we can guarantee it is if we have a no trade clause and so on. So I think just being honest, transparent. Um, look, there's going to be times they don't like what you have to say. But I do think having some humility and making sure you don't have any arrogance at all that you're not above anybody. You're not anyone's boss. You're not, you know, you're at the same level and they need you. You need them. You're working together. We're all trying to do the same thing. We want to win games. You know, and they have, they have their careers to worry about and we have the organization to worry about. So I think for the most part, it's worked fine. Um, You know that there's going to be lines. You can't get too close, but I think if you shoot guys straight nine times out of 10, you should be fine. All right. Now you and Doug open the door for you to tell a little bit about your story of how you got into baseball. And it's such a great story. Uh, I mean, I know a lot about it because you and I have known each other for such a long time, but you, you called Jim Beatty, oh, yeah. general manager of the Montreal Expos out of the blue. <laughs> and he answered like, this is a true story. What did yeah, he yeah. say? And what did you say? So I was, um, again, I was 22, 23. And I was trying to get into baseball and I called all the clubs and I had a job, an internship with the Miami Marlins at the time, so the Florida Marlins, and they offered it and then they had to pull it back because then they realized I was Canadian, getting a work visa was going to be challenging. So that was my first job that I had for a week or two. And then they said, sorry, we can't go, go through with it. But I called, you know, I called everybody and yeah, you're getting the usual. We don't have the money. We can't afford it. And I said, look, I'll work for free. I was, you know, I lived at home and so on. And, uh, I finally connected with someone at Claude, Claude Delorme, who still works, I, I believe, um, with Miami. He was working for the Montreal Expos at the time, and I just kind of told him I wanted to work in baseball. I work for free. just want to get the experience. And he's like, look, why don't you – I'll give you Jim Beatty's phone number. So this was in – this must have been February or March because it was spring training. So he gave me his direct line. And you think about it back then, this would have, this would have been 2000 at the time. And people still had landlines where they used them a lot more. <laughs> So I had his direct line, and I remember I said, all right, I'm going to call him. So I call. He answers the phone, Jim Beatty. I immediately hang up the phone because <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. I cannot believe GM just answered the phone. So I panicked, right? I, was like, I, wasn't ex- I figured I'd leave my voicemail. So I panicked. I hung up. So within 30 se- seconds, whatever, I realized, hey, I-, I better call him back. So I call him back, and he answers. Same thing. I didn't say, hey, I was the guy that just called 20 minutes ago. <laughs> And, and hung up on you, but he played it cool. And um, I just told him, look, I'm from the area. I'm, this is where I'm going to school. Um, you know, anything you have available, you know, the, the dollars are not an issue for me. I just want the work experience. I want to do something I'm enjoying. And to his credit, um, you know, he asked me for my information. I sent him an email. Um, he forwarded along to other people in baseball operations. And um, I heard back a few weeks later, I was, they had said, you know, we're going to create this position in the clubhouse, sort of mail and, it was me and one other guy um, that I guess was were competing for the opportunity to do it. <laughs> and I was probably calling every two or three days. And I think finally when I got it, I think 
you know, the guy on the other end just said, look, you want this way more than the other guy. It's yours. So, um, and that's how I started. But my passion at the time was scouting and evaluating players. And um, I did that for the summer in 2000. Then I went down to Florida, worked in the international scouting department at the time and just got to be on the field and go to Dominican. And, and I was a sponge. I loved every minute of it because I kept learning and learning and learning. And from there, things moved fast. And, and didn't you turn down a paid job to take a free job in baseball? Like, what were you thinking? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was young and I had applied at Fidelity, which is a financial, you know, big financial firm. And it was going to be to go work in Toronto. I'd gone to university just outside of Toronto and had a lot of friends there. So good job, good career, good company. It was done deal. They offered me the position. The same day they offered me the position, the Expos had formally offered me the position. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was staying with my aunt at the time. It was an old Greek lady, very old school, didn't know anything about sports. But she lo- lost her, her mind uh, when I told her, look, I'm 23. If I can get this financial job once, I want to give this thing a shot for tears. I'm sure I can get it again at 25. I just want to try. You know, I just want to give this thing a shot. I don't want I didn't want to have any regrets when I got older. I didn't want the what ifs, 35, 40 years old. And what if I'd done this? What if I'd done that? I just wanted to take a shot and do it. Um, so obviously I turned it down and I figured I'd, if I'd give it two years and if it failed, I could probably find some type of employment, be okay. Uh, but I, I didn't want to mail it in, no pun intended, and um, just do a job I wasn't happy with. I didn't want to do the nine to five. I, didn't, I wanted to enjoy going to work day in and day out. And um, you know, I, I tell my kids today, if you find something you truly enjoy, you're probably going to do well. And I couldn't get enough. I'd go into the office on Saturday, Sundays when the team was on the road. I'd get videos from the scouting bureau and watch previous draft picks and so on. And it wasn't because I was trying to get ahead or impress. I just legitimately loved it. I'd go down and watch swings and batting practice. I remember watching like Jeremy Giambi from a stat standpoint was great. And I remember I just didn't love the swing when I went down. I was trying to marry the stats and the scouting. So um, it was fun. It was fun. And I learned. And we had a small group with the Expos. So I wore a lot of hats and um, that was the best organization for me because I was exposed to player development, pro scouting, administrative, all that kind of stuff. Um, And from there, you know, job opened up in Toronto and then things moved fast. All right. Now, speaking of marrying, this is my other favorite story about you. Uh, Your friend Perry Manastian told me this one, the story of your wedding where oh, no. you went to scout Araldus Chapman the day before your wedding, and then you were Two trying days. to sign him during the wedding and the honeymoon. No, 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 no. That's that's a little. It's yeah. It gets it gets diluted a little bit. So I get the GM job at the end of the season. We were not um, set up internationally uh, as well as you know, I felt we maybe we could have been. Um, and it was like a cramming for an exam. So Chapman's available. And um, we just didn't have a lot on him. And I think two days before is before the new year. I got married January 2nd. So I think it was New Year's Eve. Uh, went down to Miami. Uh, and we flew back that, that day. But to, you know, spend time with him, see him throw, and so on. And uh, they needed offers pretty quick. So. I remember having a conference call the night before on January 1st at night, just because we're trying to, it's a lot of money. You got, you got $30 million from the Reds. It was all kinds of things stopped into arbitration. It was a big deal. It was a lot of money. At the time it was a huge deal. And uh, we had to put our offer in, put it together. So 
the night before the wedding, we're having, I remember being in the office and we're having conference calls. And then the day of my wedding, um, on my way to the church, I spit it off. So I submitted the offer, shut the phone down, put it in my pocket and I was done. Just, but it was in, on the ride. That was the last bit. I wasn't at the altar like that. And then, you know, beyond that, but yeah. When you're get, when you work in baseball, as you guys know, it's just there's no ideal time to get married. <laughs> so I'd been engaged as an AGM. I got the job at the end of the year, and then you know you can't. No one's going to wait for you. And Chapman was just someone that. But I will say this, you know, Chapman and not feeling as prepared as we should have been. Talking about trying to learn from things, um, we signed a Danny Chivery after that, and it was a lot less money. It was ten million dollars, but. The lesson from Chapman just it felt like it was rushed and we didn't get to the, the dollars that the Reds did offer. We were below that. Um, we didn't feel as prepared and we had enough, as much information and it was rushed. It was crammed. So it definitely impacted the next signing because, you know, when we signed Danny Chavaria, we spent two full days with him. We got a million at-bats. Even five years later, Vlad Guerrero Jr. probably got 100 at-bats with him. And just those are tough decisions to make on these Latin American players you haven't seen as much and so on. If something like that where we lost Chapman, I think helped our process with the Chevrolet, helped our process with Guerrero because we wanted to get really comfortable when you're making big decisions like, like that. Yeah, the other no, you, big lesson, I think, for executives everywhere is don't get married in the middle of free agency. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, you know, we, we, we did it way early. So, right. well, like We're all married to incredible women, who understand the the madness of baseball? But seriously, what was your wife's reaction to you making an offer to a baseball player on the way to the church? Uh, not happy. But she didn't know about it until she found out about it after the fact. So she's like, "Really? On the way to the church, you make an offer?" So I, I knew we had to submit it. Um, and look, I didn't know what, you know, it was blind, blind bids, right? So we didn't know what other uh, clubs were going to do. And we, we did what we could in terms of putting in the work and so on. And we, you know, made a, an offer that we felt good about. But um, you still had a responsibility to get the job done. But, yes, I mean, once that was done, I shut the phone down. And I didn't, my phone did not come on again the entire day. No, you didn't, you, didn't have, you didn't have, like, UP didn't come to your wedding at all, did he? No, did you? <laughs> he didn't at the time, I worked for Toronto, right? So, oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, and, and the Montreal Expos left. We were uh, already gone at, at, at the time when we were, yeah, this is 2010. Oh, so, sad. Um, Expos. Yeah, but that it was, uh, no, it's been, I've had a lot of, you know, a lot of it's right place, right, right time. Small organizations, spots open up and so on. And, um, no, it's what you do with those opportunities. All right, Alex, we could ask you a million things, but I, I know you got to go. I cannot let you run before I let you play North America's favorite game, Know Your Alex Anthopoulos Trivia. Okay, so. Oh, boy. You, you were the GM in Toronto. You were the GM in Atlanta. So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions, and I know you're going to nail these, okay? I bet you Who I won't. Had, for you to ask me. Right. Go ahead. Okay, you're, you can do this. Who had more wins while you were the GM of their team? Max Freed in Atlanta or R.A. Dickey in Toronto? <laughs> so just for the years that I was there, right? Just so, when you were there. Right. So 2018, Max Freed was up and down. 
19. He basically was in the rotation the whole year. Last year, he was great. I'm going to say Max Fried. That's a really good guess, but it's wrong. It's wrong. <laughs> I, you know what? I thought I figured it would be obviously BRA just because of the years and the innings. But I was I was basically trying to I thought myself figured okay the obvious one is RA I'm gonna go max so yeah all right I'm, I'm, I'm sneaky one. like that yeah see it's thirty nine like for RA thirty six for max oh, it was close, close. Okay. very close but sooner or later you're gonna be right that's right <laughs> that's true okay. Right. okay one more now more right. stolen bases for oh. your teams was it Acuna in Atlanta. Or Jose Reyes in Toronto. Oh, Cunha, easy, slam dunk. <laughs> yeah, slam okay. dunk. He crushed it. Yeah, Cunha seventy-eight, Reyes sixty-one. Oh, that's actually good? a little a little closer than I expected. <laughs> All right. Well, Cunha'd be way ahead if he were healthy, but nevertheless, good that's stuff. Yeah. All right. Do we, Doug? What do you think? Does Alex get to advance? In Know Your Alex Anthopoulos trivia? If we ever he do does. this again? Yes, he does. He can visit Starkville again, and we will put a statue up nice. should he get uh, two out of two the next time. <laughs> yeah, nice. Something to dream on, man. That's right. Uh, Goals. A Alex, so good of you to take time out of your schedule, uh, especially in the last week of August, to join us. Always great to talk to you. Good luck the rest of the way. All right, guys. Really enjoyed doing it. Yeah, thanks, yeah, Alex, thanks so for taking much. the time. Appreciate okay. it. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. All right, here we go again. It's time for Listener Trivia, our way of involving you, our favorite listeners in this show. And once again this week, for some reason, we continue to literally involve you by picking our favorite Listener Trivia question and then inviting you to join us on this podcast live to stump us and thoroughly humiliate us with your questions. Doug, you know, I actually think people are starting to feel sorry for us because one thing I noticed this week is that some of our listeners felt like we should have gotten credit for getting last week's trivia question right, despite the slight technicality that we didn't get it right. <laughs> right. But if you remember, it was a question about pitchers <laughs> who held the single season strikeout record for two different teams. And like we had the answer, then we talked ourselves out of Pedro Martinez and the real stumper. We even had him Rube Waddell. <laughs> they were the two right answers that we missed. So like, do you think that we can give ourselves some sort of retroactive credit or partial retroactive credit? Because otherwise we've got no credit at all for any of these in like months. Yeah. You know what, you know what I appreciate about our Starkville relationship, Jason, is that, 
we we've effectively switched roles here. I used to be the one, you know, arguing for partial credit, half credit, and <laughs> and schemes all the time, and now you've taken over. So I, I think you know the mayor Tim McMaster may have to really digest this coming up week about maybe we need to come up with a rules committee and figure out like some formal rules that give us a chance. Because sometimes I mean it is hard if you're picking one name out of every player who ever played the game of baseball in history. It is hard to yeah. do that on one guest. I mean, so on one guest. So, you know, we can, we can kick it so around. The man who, so the man who devised the multi-guest cheating scheme. Yes. Uh, let's bring in the mayor. Let's let, Tim, what do you think? Can we get any partial credit for last week? No, I mean, Ever? we can't change the rules after the fact. The, the one thing I'll say is I am all for, as the mayor, I am all for people helping you out. Like whoever's on asking the question, the, the listeners that come up with these great questions, if they want to give clues to give you a little nudge in the right direction, I'm all for that. But at the mm-hmm. end of the day, you have to get the question right. That's and you, you guys didn't last week. Well, we could pay. No, no, we could pay. Can we pay people? Is that is that possible? That that would take the scheme up to another no, level. I'm not def- I, I'm not going to be a party. Starkville to that. is not that kind of town. <laughs> yeah, like like whatever kind of uh, hint money, hush money, cheating money you're going to pay. I am not a party to that. Here, but here's the thing. Maybe. This is the week. You know, I doubt it, but we haven't gone up in flames yet. So I'm thinking there's always hope. Yeah. So we're going to move along to this week's special trivia guest star. It's Max Johnson. Uh, Max, uh, I was judging from his Twitter photo and his feed. He's from Cleveland. Um, I wanted to ask him about the Cleveland Guardians, but Max got busy. So we're just going to have to have the mayor... Read us the question. I think you guys can get this one right. I, I think it's gettable. So All know, right. psych yourselves up. All right. Get the creative yeah. juices flowing, and here you go. <laughs> uh, this is related to the fact that Miguel Cabrera hit his 500th home run last week. Of course, we talked about that on the last episode. Uh, there are three members of the 500 home run club who have won Rookie of the Year, Most Valuable Player, and a World Series ring in mm-hmm. their careers. Three Whoa. out of the 28, I think it is, right? Whoa. Right. Okay. That, is, that is right. But the rookie of the year didn't exist for all of them. Correct. Yeah, hey, the MVP didn't that, exist That eliminates a chunk. Yep. Well, right. Jack, Jackie um, Robinson, right? Was the, He was the first rookie of the year in well, 1947. He, 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 he? Right. So that's when the rookie of the year began. That's all right. exactly right. So, so that helps. Uh, just to be clear, like when, he, when Max tweeted the question, he said three others, but he meant three period, right? Because Miggy never did all three yeah so miggy while he had a decent rookie year it was only really a half season i think mm-hmm. he finished fifth so he did not win rookie of the year yeah he, right he, he wasn't uh in the big leagues long enough so if we only need three mm-hmm. i think we have a shot uh, all right all right all right okay albert Pujols is obviously one of them okay obviously. okay we don't even have to think about that one uh, then I was thinking Mark McGuire has to be another, but but hold on now. Did he win a World Series? Uh, he he didn't. Oh, he won the World Series with the A's, but he won Rookie of the Year. But I, I'm thinking now he didn't win the MVP that year. He hit 70 homers. Oh, right. So uh, I'm gonna have to rethink that part of it. So, all right, let's think about this. So, thanks to Wander Franco, there have been a ton of notes out there in the last few days about. Uh, Frank Robinson's incredible on-base mm-hmm. streak at 20 years old. Yep. 
so I'm thinking Frank Robinson was great as a rookie in, I think it was 1956. Yep. So he'd be another guess of mine. Good guess. So that would give us Pujols and Frank Robinson. Then we've just got to get one more. So, God, there's a lot of possibilities. Willie Mays. Uh, he was certainly great right from the get-go. I was thinking he didn't win a World Series, but he only didn't win one in San Francisco. He did win one in New York. Mickey Mantle, for sure, although I th- he got hurt, right, that first year. Uh, yep. Henry Aaron. Reggie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rafael Palmero. Manny Ramirez is a good one. Uh, Frank Thomas. See, this is... Eddie Murray. <laughs> this is getting like, hard. Was, I know, but what, like, was Frank Thomas the rookie of the year, Doug? That was the early 90s, right? That was, that was your time of intense baseball interest. I don't remember because he – wasn't he 90? Because Chipper Jones – Chipper Different Jones league, was though. number number one. No, but in terms of draft first overall. He wasn't first overall, but that wasn't the question. Yeah. Rookie of the year, MVP. Yeah. Just thinking through. That was, the year, that was the year, though, I think he was drafted, right? Um, uh-huh. Gosh, I, I have I have a lot of trouble with the rookie of the year side of this. I don't. Right, that's the hard. Uh, part. I mean, A Rod. What about A Rod? Was he? Was I mean, he had a phenomenal I, rookie. But he was up and down. He came up in '94, then the strike happened. They sent him down. Then he was up and down a little bit. I, I yeah. don't think he was rookie of the year. There's also Griffey, of course. Griffey. Would he win a World Griffey Series? Oh, I never won the World Series. Nope. That's right. That's so, right. Never mind. Never mind. Uh, yeah, my list. I, uh, Reggie, I was thinking about Reggie. Um, McGuire, I have on here. Frank Robinson, I didn't. But Pujols. I have Mantle on here. Yeah, Frank Thomas. That's what I had here. Willie Mays. What about <laughs> Willie Mays? <laughs> Willie Mays is always a good guess. Yeah, it's a good guess. I don't know. Um... Frank Thomas. We know Mantle won the World Series a hundred times. All right. I, I, yeah, I, the third one, I'm not very confident. I mean, Willie Mays does sound, he's the answer to everything. Pujols, Frank, and <laughs> Willie. Mm. He's going to be the answer to everything except this question, of course, because that's our lot in life. Yeah, right, look, should, we just, just, should we just give up? Yeah, I think I don't I don't have a better answer. Yeah. So let's just guess. All right. Um, All right. So, Willie Mays, is that your final guess? Yeah, I'm going to go Willie Mays. All right. Well, I do like our chances more now than when I first heard the question, but not, not enough. All right, let's let's ask the mayor if we actually got this. Is is there any chance that it's Albert Pujols, Frank Robinson, and Willie Mays? Yes. Yeah. What? what? You got oh, it. Oh, my God. Wow. Well Incredible. Done. You know, really it's funny, got one right? When I was researching and going oh, through all the names goodness. to because I always fact check whatever the, the listener trivia is <laughs> to make sure they get it right. And and Max had this one right. But I was going through the names um to double check and, and I, I was like Mark McGuire is gonna get them. They're yeah. gonna get this wrong because of Mark McGuire. Uh, <laughs> because who would think that he didn't win the MVP, right? But you're right, he didn't. So I'm impressed not only that you got it right, but then that you mentioned the tricky part of this, McGuire. 
and were able to talk yourself out of it and move on. Very that's impressive. A switch. That's a switch. That's a like, total usually, switch. We <laughs> say talk ourselves out of the right answers and the wrong answers. Like, right. I cannot even remember the last time we got one right. Was it like May? I think it's when I went. Then I solo and had a question on myself. Was that the last one or yeah, one other? Yeah, one? that we had. A, we had a streak. You got one right about yourself, and then we got another one right the next yeah. week. I think it's five um, total, it. right, or five and a half. I, I think, think we're now episode. something like. Five and sixteen. I want. Yeah. I, I, I think we should get that, ten points for this one. Just, just, just ten points, or one for each answer we got. That's uh, three, <laughs> three points. <laughs> no, it doesn't work. Like five and sixteen is still pathetic. But why does it sound so much better than four and seventeen? It does. It sounds a lot better. I, I, I wish I was five for sixteen my whole career. That, that's a heck of a batting average. <laughs> I'll no, take it's it. five and sixteen, not five for sixteen. Sorry. All right, look, enough euphoria here. If you listen regularly, you know that whether we get the question right or wrong, we still bring in the mayor of Starkville to McMaster to try to save the segment by playing some thrilling, chilling highlight from the career of one of the answers. So, Tim, what do you got in your highlight reel this week? Willie Mays is our focus this week. Of course, 1954, the year he got his first MVP that year. And his only World Series title and a big reason that he got that World Series title was this famous play in the eighth inning of game one. He caught it. Optical that's the most illusion. famous catch in baseball history. That's my that's my hypothesis. Am I right? Most famous catch ever, don't you think? I mean, yeah. I mean, I it's mean, known as the catch. Big time. So the it catch. Has to be. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just called the catch. <laughs> yeah. When my son was a little kid and we went to Cooperstown, they had a life-size cutout of Willie Mays catching that ball. And my son said to me, Dad, what's this? And I said, this is the most famous catch ever ever made and then i went and showed him the video and we had like a moment around that catch so i always have a soft spot for it but never more than this week yeah <laughs> do you believe in miracles doug uh, yes now who hit <laughs> wait who hit the ball that he caught Vic Wirtz hit the all ball right. all right Vic I figured you'd be on it uh amazing yeah. i feel yes i feel like we just made the catch so we have to coin this week as something special uh the answer let's just call it the answer like <laughs> alan iverson right the answer Okay, so, I am in on that. The answer, capital T, capital A. Let's go with that. Strange but true. All right, as we do every week, we have reached the portion of this show where we recap our favorite strange but true moments of the week. Some weeks we actually have quite a debate about what to talk about in this segment. Uh, not this week, because last Wednesday... The Dodgers and Padres played a game that might still be going. Doug, are we sure it's over? It's all a blur to me, if only because it went 16 innings and it ended at 4 o'clock in the freaking morning back east. I know I slept through most of it. Uh, Safe to assume you missed a few innings too, my friend? it, given it was my birthday when it started and it wasn't my birthday when it ended, yeah, that, that was highly problematic. Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, it's quite a thing to be me while games like this are going on. Like, I don't know how I got to be this guy who's the curator of all these 
nutty games. But I, all right, I wake up the next morning and my Twitter timeline <laughs> is just filled with tweets from people saying, this is your kind of game. Or I can't wait to see what you find on this game. Now, I've been awake for literally 30 seconds, but America has already assigned me hours of feverish research on this game that they've been watching. And for some reason, while they're watching it, they're thinking about me. Like, what's wrong with me? I understand. I mean, that's the first thing I always think of. So I'm always like, what do I text Chase right now? <laughs> yeah, you're the... It's true. Many many times where you text me about games like this. All right, so let's, let's go through a few of my favorite things about this game. Uh, starting with this. The Padres almost went four hours without a hit, and they were still playing. This is amazing. Now, uh, our great Padres writer, Dennis Lynn, uh, he kept track of this. According to him, the Padres went hitless for three hours and 42 minutes. <laughs> okay, Adam Frazier got a single in the fifth inning. That was at 8.45 Pacific time, so 11.45 back east. It was almost the end of your birthday. And then they wouldn't get another hit until 12.27 a.m. Pacific, which means that's almost 3.30 in the morning where we live. Uh, so at this point, they, they have finally fallen behind by two runs. It's the 15th inning. And then, of course, Fernando Tatis Jr. stepped up there, and here's what he did. Fly ball, deep right field off the bat of Fernando. That ball is back, and it is gone! Fernando Tatis Jr. has tied the score in the bottom of the 15th inning. El Nino! <laughs> what a great call by Don Arcillo. He was awake. <laughs> so, uh, Doug, before that swing, this is amazing. The Padres had, had sent 38 hitters in a row to the plate, and none of them got a hit. <laughs> Like, we went back, we couldn't find a single team that had done that in any game since 1985. 38 hitters in a row without getting a hit, and they were still alive? Yeah. you believe that one? And the ball, like, it, like, scraped the fence, you know, it, like, rolled across the fence. I mean, it, I mean, it was it was almost yeah. an out, too. It was, it was almost a 39th hitter. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it was, there, there wouldn't have been many more, I'll tell you that. Uh, all right, here's another thing. The, uh, the zombie runners... They had a rough night. Um, like before this game, since or the last two years before, since baseball went to the extra inning role with the zombie runners on second, no game had lasted more than 13 innings. And then this game went 16. So here's how that happened. Because these two teams went 10 half innings in a row. <laughs> Without scoring. And remember, every one of them started with this zombie runner in scoring position. I actually invented a new stat. You know, RISP, yeah. runners in scoring position. I invented ZRISP, zombie runners in scoring position. Uh, we, uh, we Again, we couldn't find any other game, went back almost a half century, where two teams went 10 half innings in a row, not just extra innings, any time in any game, with at least one runner in scoring position without any of the runners scoring. Should that be impossible? <laughs> it's close to it, but then would they have, like, you know, zombie apocalypse, you know, all kinds of things happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good point. All right, then another thing, the intentional walks. The Dodgers issued eight intentional walks in this game just in extra <laughs> Right. Now, 
Uh, Jace Tingler manages the Padres. He got a little double switchy in this game, so he wound up with the pitcher hitting fifth right behind Manny Machado. So anytime Dave Roberts saw that middle of the order approaching, he just walked everybody, and some pitcher would come up and make an out. So eight intentional walks in extra innings. Just so you know, the Orioles have issued eight intentional walks in the last calendar year. That's over 1,300 innings. It's over 5,000 hitters. And Dave Roberts did it just in this game. That's a classic, Oh, my God. Yeah, I I kept thinking, you know, why don't they install a people mover from home to first? I mean, it makes sense, right? You're at the airport. You don't want to run and walk. You just kind of get put your luggage on the people mover. So after a while, Roberts should just had just electronic, just, you know, let the person just slide right on through. Just get to first base. No need to stress yourself out. Just just have a you know escalator on the ground there. <laughs> I I like this idea. It's pretty close to what they did because you don't have to throw. Yeah, pretty up the throws. So. Point four <laughs> fingers. Point whatever. All right. So now here's how this thing finally did end because it did end. Top of the sixteenth, uh, Dodgers sent AJ Pollock to the plate, and here's what he did. Pollock hammers the ball deep center field. Forget. one a breaking ball right on time and hit a long way joe davis and oral hersheiser right on time (laughs) (laughs) it was four o'clock in the morning in the east but uh, doug that's the first 16th inning two-run leadoff homer yeah i imagine so (laughs) (laughs) so that was crazy then also this had become the first game ever according to our friends from Stats Perform, where both teams hit a multi-run home run in the 15th <laughs> inning or thereafter. Think about it, man. So what do you think, Doug? Does this qualify as strange but true <laughs> enough for us? Super strange but true. I mean, we need to add like another adjective. Uh, I mean, yeah, I just was scratching my head. And, th- and this is this is where Snell, I mean, it started off like a beautiful pitcher's duel, Bueller what? and Snell, and Snell hadn't gone into like the eighth inning since like 2018 or something. Three, I mean, yeah, three years without Yeah, and it's like, oh, yep. and, you know, he's back or something like that. And little did you know, he could you could have thrown like two or three Snells uh, back to back and they still kept playing. I mean, it was like, what is going on? So uh, really, yeah, I mean, this game was just baffling. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. Now, is, did Jansen get his, what, Jansen got his 1,000th. It wasn't this game, was it? Or was that yesterday? His thousand yeah. strikeout. I, I mean, it, it was somewhere. Yeah, it was in that like, series. yeah, it was just a blur. So I mean, I just, yeah, I, I just know. was like a master. Yeah. So I, I just, I mean, you know, I remember playing the Padres and seeing zeros go up in a bunch of extra innings when we played against someone. I think it was with the Phillies, but I hadn't seen anything like this with all the runners at second not scoring, walks. I mean, and the, and the Padres had three intentional walks themselves, right? So it was like eleven in the game. Yeah, there were, there were eleven <laughs> all together. There are all kinds of intentional walk records. So there's an intentional walk. <laughs> And like even that was a mess because, um, like, they had to try it. They tried it once, but time was out. So 
uh, <laughs> like the whole thing was wild. Now, you, you mentioned that game in San Diego. I think you've talked about that on this show, the longest game you ever played in. W- wasn't it the first game of a West Coast trip and you were all like bleary eyed? Oh, yeah. Completely come, delirious. I mean, yeah, we finished at like the equivalent of like whatever, four in the morning, three in the morning or something. I don't even know. But yeah, that West Coast, when you travel, <laughs> you, you pay. At least these two teams, or at least were used to the West Coast flavor because if that was like the, the Mets or something, I mean, they would have been sleeping at second base at some point. Let's take a nap. <laughs> yeah, but nobody had played. Nobody had played five hours and forty-seven minutes um, since uh, pre-zombie yeah. virus. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure everybody was uh, was. They were, weary. They were zombies. No, they, no in fact, that. they all turned into zombies, they, which is that. Hence the name, zombie runners. Yep. Well, that game may have seemed like it would never end, but these Starkville shows always end. <laughs> so that's going to do it for this week's show. You can find us every Tuesday right here as part of the Athletic Baseball Show. Mondays, it's Ken Rosenthal's Mailbag. Thursdays, Hunter Pence and Grant Brisby. Fridays, Keith Law and Derek Van Riper. And it's all available in its entirety, absolutely free, everywhere you get your podcasts. Uh, I should also mention, you can still find us ad-free at the Athletic app. So if you like what you hear, we would love it if you would subscribe, give us one of those five-star reviews. I appreciate everyone who has already done that. And if you'd like to read our work or any of the incredible writing on our site, uh, there's no better sports writing being done anywhere than in The Athletic. So if you've thought about subscribing, just go to theathletic.com slash baseball show and you can subscribe for 50% off. So check us out. Also remember... You too can be part of this podcast. Every week, we invite the listener who submits the most fun, we're going to use that word fun in quotes, trivia question of the week, to join us right here in the podcast and prove once again there is almost no baseball trivia question we can't get wrong. Uh, To do that, you can email us at starkville.theathletic.com or there's always Twitter if somebody was going to try to Tweet a question at Doug Glanville. How would that yeah. work? Yeah, well, just at Doug Glanville, D-O-U-G-G-L-A-N-V-I-L-L-E. No problem. No problem, man. You can find me at J-A-Y-S-O-N-S-T. That's at Jason with a Y-S-T. Remember to hashtag the questions, hashtag Starkville QS. Also remember, do not answer other people's questions. <laughs> right. No okay? spoilers. Messing up everything here. <laughs> Uh, All right, so Doug, thanks for playing. Thanks to Alex Anthopoulos for visiting us. Thanks to Max Johnson for the great trivia question. Thanks to the mayor of Starkville, Tim McMaster, for producing us and putting up with us. And thanks to you all for listening. Coming up Thursday on the Athletic Baseball Show, it's Hunter Pence and Grant Brisby. Doug and I will see you next Tuesday on Starkville. Hey, baseball fans, this is Derek Van Riper. Now that spring training games are underway, opening day is just a few weeks away. Eno Saris and I have been getting ready for the season all winter on Rates and Barrels. Whether you're a seasoned fantasy player, a baseball stats junkie, or just someone who wants to learn more about the game, 
Join us for four episodes each week this season, including our new Friday live stream with former big leaguer Trevor May. Check out the live stream on Fridays at 1 o'clock Eastern on the Rates and Barrels YouTube channel, or listen to the show wherever you enjoy your podcasts, including the ad-free option on the Athletic app.